Taking their place in a long true line of everyday Americans. Helping to secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity. This is the Constitution Study on the America Out Loud Network with your host, Paul Engel. Pay the bills, stay out of jail, love the neighbors and have a few good friends. Every day you were everyday Americans. You know, I've been saying for a while, we need to spend less time focusing on what happens in Washington, D.C., and more time focusing on what's happening locally. You know, we, we have been trained to focus on Pennsylvania Avenue and the Capitol Hill, but we are losing track of what's happening in our own backyards, what's happening in our state houses, our county courthouses, our city halls. And that's leading to a loss of rights. In fact, I'd go so far as to say we really need to focus locally because they can protect us from the bad things that happen in Washington, D.C. if we have the right people in place there. Well, hello there, everyday Americans. Welcome to the Constitution Study. This is Paul Engel. I am glad you could join me today because today we are going to look at why it's so important to though we may think globally and we may think nationally, we need to stay focused on what's happening in our state and local governments. We all recognize that property can be foreclosed on for failure to pay a tax debt. What happens when the value of the foreclosure, though, is greater than the debt owed? A case out of Michigan recently appealed to the Sixth Circuit seeks redress for just such situations. Eight citizens of Oakland County, Michigan, are suing the county for, among other things, taking property worth far more than the tax debt owed, then not reimbursing them the difference. Is this an illegal taking or a deprivation of property without due process? Or could it simply be a scheme to defraud both the homeowners and taxpayers of Oakland County? Something appears rotten in the city of Southfield in the county of Oakland in the state of Michigan. In the case of Tonawanda Hall et al. versus Edward Meisner, Oakland County Treasurer et al., some truly disturbing facts have come to light. Before I get into the details of the case, a little background is required. Though not the issue before the court, I was shocked not only by the actions of several county officials, but by the fact that no one seems to be investigating apparent embezzlement by those officials. When the homeowners in this case failed to pay their property taxes on time, the court foreclosed. The homes were not sold at auction, but transferred through a series of transactions to a company managed by city officials, the Southfield Neighborhood Revitalization Company, LLC, for a payment of the tax debt plus $1 each. Now, while foreclosure for an unpaid debt is a terrible situation to be in, what the city of Southfield and Oakland County did next is unconscionable. None of the homeowners were paid for what was taken from them because a state statute purported to authorize cities to purchase for a public purpose tax foreclosed property by paying the county the accrued tax debt. The asserted public purpose, according to the resolution adopted by the city council, was to revitalize and stabilize neighborhoods and rehabilitate and renovate these homes and then return them to productive use and purchase by individuals and families seeking housing opportunities within the city of Southfield. That's City Resolution 45-5. City council members also said at another meeting that conveyance of the property from the county through the city to the company would attract residents with more income. 
both the Fifth Amendment to the Constitution of the United States and Article 10, Section 2 of the Michigan Constitution state that private property may not be taken for public use without just compensation. This brings up a constitutional issue since these properties were not taken by the city for public use. We can thank the Supreme Court in the case Kelo versus City of New London for that, where the court found that taking private property to sell to a private entity was public use because it would lead to public improvement, specifically revitalizing a blighted neighborhood. Now we have the City Council of Southfield, Michigan, using the same logic to purchase these properties to increase their tax base. But the malfeasance doesn't stop there. With the city council's authority, Mayor Kenson Siver signed a contract with the Southfield Nonprofit Housing Corporation, which owns the company, the Southfield Revitalization Initiative, to execute this arrangement. The nonprofit and company are both controlled by city officials. Mayor Siver is president of the nonprofit and signed the paperwork creating the company. City manager Fred Zorn is a board member and vice president of the nonprofit and the manager and registered agent for the company. To say that the mayor and city manager of Southfield have a conflict of interest is an understatement. The mayor of Southfield, with the city council's permission, has contracted with a nonprofit that he controls to do business with a company that the nonprofit owns and is managed by the city manager. Now, if that were all, it certainly would be worth investigation. But how these entities deal with the foreclosures is truly criminal in my mind. Let's take a look at the example of Tawanda Hall. Tawanda Hall owned a home with her now-deceased husband at 24650 Martha Washington Drive, Southfield, Michigan, in 2010. On February 14, 2018, the county foreclosed and took title of the property to collect $22,642 in property taxes, interest, penalties, and fees. Without notice, on June 29, 2018, the county treasurer deeded the property to the city, which paid the tax debt with funds from the nonprofit. On October 23, 2018, the city gave the property to the company for $1. The company later sold the Hall's home for its fair market value of $308,000, $285,000 more than the Hall's own tax debt, and kept all the proceeds. There are questions as to whether the county followed Michigan law regarding the foreclosure, but that's not what I'm focusing on here today. Just four months after foreclosing on the property, the county treasurer deeded the property to the city, who paid the tax debt with money from a from Southfield Nonprofit Housing Corporation, which is run by the city mayor. Now, the city owns a piece of property worth $308,000 for the low, low cost of just $22,642 paid by someone else. In other words, the city received that property for free. The city then sells a property to Southfield Neighborhood Revitalization Initiative, LLC, a for-profit corporation, which is managed by the Southfield city manager for the low, low price of just $1. Ms. Hall is only one of eight people seeking a redress for this type of grievance. In August 2020, these eight homeowners filed this federal lawsuit against the parties involved in the confiscation of their properties. The county, city, public officials, the company, the nonprofit, and the managers of the company. At issue in this appeal, the homeowners allege that all the appellees took their private property without just compensation. The city, the county, and public officials imposed excessive fines. The county and its treasurer violated procedural due process, and the company, nonprofit city, and its officials were liable to return the windfall received at the homeowner's expense under the doctrine of unjust enrichment. While there are several issues in this lawsuit, this appeal only focuses on a few. 
Did the county, city at all, take private property without just compensation? Did they impose excessive fines and violate due process? Well, let's take a look at these individually. Under the constitutions of the United States and Michigan, we read, nor shall private property be taken for public use without just compensation. Now, as I mentioned previously, this property was not taken for the public use. First, it was foreclosed on by the county for failure to pay taxes. Then it was transferred to the city in exchange for the tax debt. The alleged public purpose was to enlarge the tax base of the city, not for the property to be used by the public. That means this is not a takings clause issue. However, under Michigan common law, the Michigan Supreme Court has held that government affects an uncompensated taking or is liable for unjust enrichment when government takes more than it is owed during property tax collection. The practice of municipal governments gaining a windfall after foreclosing on property is nothing new. The question is, is it legal? Now, this would seem to revolve around the definition of a fine to impose a pecuniary or financial punishment. In English, a fine is a punishment that is evaluated in monetary terms. The tax these people owed was not a fine, it was a tax. When they failed to pay their taxes on time, they accrued both interest and fines, or monetary punishment for their failure to make timely payment. The question is, when the county foreclosed, were they imposing a fine? Since the property that was forfeit was used to pay off both the debts and the fines, it could certainly be considered a fine, a monetary punishment. This is important because the Eighth Amendment states, nor excessive fines be imposed. Is a $308,000 fine imposed on a $22,642 debt excessive? I would certainly say that a fine more than 13 times the debt is excessive. If you borrowed money from someone and they demanded you pay back 13 times more than you borrowed, we'd call that person a loan shark. So yes, this certainly seems to be a case of excessive fines. The Fifth Amendment says, nor be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. We often hear it talked about, but what is due process of law? Well, from the Law Dictionary. Law in its regular course of administration through courts of justice. Due process of law in each particular case means such an exercise of the powers of the government as the settled maxims of law permit and sanction, and under such safeguards for the protection of individual rights as those maxims prescribe for the class of case to which the one in question belongs. So the Law Dictionary provides two senses of due process that apply to this case. First, it's the administration of law through the courts. Second, it's the exercise of governmental powers under the safeguards for the protection of individual rights. Now, as it pertains to this case, was the property taken following the protection of the rights of the individual? I'd say the answer here is no. W with this appeal, the appellants claim that the county did not provide them adequate notice that they were disposing of their property. Many complained that the county either violated the terms of their payment agreement or fraudulently advised them on how to respond to legal notices. That certainly would appear to violate due process. Furthermore, since the debt owed to the county was a fraction of the value of the property seized, due process and Michigan common law requires the government to keep only what it is owed. In Raffelli, the Michigan Supreme Court held that where government takes private property to satisfy a tax debt and sells it to the highest bidder at public auction, the government is only entitled to keep as much as is it owed from the proceeds of the sale. 
any surplus remaining after paying the taxes, penalties, interest, and fees belongs to the former owner, even where state law purports to give the money to the government. By allowing the city to purchase the property for an amount only equal to the debt, rather than selling the property at auction, the county denied the homeowners the remaining value of their home. This appears to be a clear example of depriving someone of the property they have in the value of their home without following the law or due process. Now, this case was first heard by the District Court for the Eastern District of Michigan. The District Court dismissed the takings claim against the appellees, but failed to state a claim, misconstruing Raffaelli as holding that a plaintiff's only property interest surviving a tax foreclosure is not in the real property itself, but only in the surplus proceeds resulting from the tax foreclosure sale, if any. When property is taken, what value is it given? More importantly, who decides what that value is? Since the county did not sell the property at public auction, there was no opportunity for the collection of surplus proceeds. This either deprived the homeowners of their rightful property, the proceeds of the sale of real property, or it deprived the taxpayers of the windfall from the sale of the foreclosure. The court dismissed the procedural due process claim against the county and its treasurer for failure to state a claim, holding that notice was constitutionally adequate because the payment plans themselves warned the homeowners that they would lose their property if they missed a payment. Were the homeowners notified that they would lose not only their property, but the equity they had in that property? Were they notified that the county would not auction off their property, thereby allowing them to retrieve the equity they had earned in it? The court dismissed the excessive fines claim brought against the county and the city, holding that the alleged actions here were not punitive and therefore there are no fines involved. I would direct the district court judge to the law dictionary definition of punitive. Relating to punishment, having the character of punishment or penalty, inflicting punishment or penalty. How can losing $308,000 to satisfy a $22,000 fine not be considered punitive? I am reviewing the appeal, not the district court's decision. From what I've seen, though, it was a pretty bad decision. The question is, will the appeals court give these homeowners redress for their grievances? I also wonder what the people of the city of Southfield and the county of Oakland think about this land grab. Do they think it is right for the county to sell property they have foreclosed on for a small fraction of what it's worth? Are the citizens of Southfield okay with their mayor and city manager running a scheme to get cheap property? And just what is being done with that property and who is benefiting from it financially? I think this is a case worth watching. What are the limits placed on governments when they foreclose on property? Do those in office have a fiduciary responsibility both to the homeowner and the taxpayers in how they dispose of the property? Are the accusations being made in this case something that could be going on around the country? This is just another reason why it is important that the American people not simply focus on Washington, D.C. and their state houses, but on their county and city governments as well. And that's something I want to continue to explore after I take this quick break. But before I do, I do want to remind you of a couple of things. Um, you can listen to the Constitution Study on the America Out Loud Talk Radio Network. We are heard on the iHeartRadio Network, 4 p.m. Eastern Time, every weekday. You can also find this show on AmericaOutloud.com. Just look under Shows or Schedule and you'll find the Constitution Study, which is a great place to find the, the podcast, the recordings of these episodes, usually a day or two after they're heard on the radio. And if you would do me a favor, 
if you would share this information. Share the episodes. You find something interesting here. Share it with friends and family. That's how other people find out about the Constitution study, about the work that we're doing here, and helping to spread those blessings of liberty wherever we can. I also wanted to let you know that if you are a healthy cell customer and you've been waiting for the Immune Super Boost to come back in stock, good news, it is finally back in stock and Healthy Cell has something nice for you. They've created what they call the Immune Boosting Package. It's the ultimate immune boosting package by Immune Super Boost before April 7th. And every listener will get a package of AC11. It's the DNA repair. All you have to do is use the code OUTLOUD at checkout. And if you're a new Healthy Cell customer, well, just go to HealthyCell.com, use that code out loud at checkout. They will give you 20% off your first order. So check out HealthyCell.com, try the ultimate immune boosting package, and come back after the break for more of the Constitution Study. Because of COVID-19, many Americans worry about their health four times a day. That's 112 times per month. But by simply keeping our immune system strong, we can stay healthy and put our worries at ease. One little known way to do this is by taking AC11, a patented supplement from a plant in the Amazon rainforest. Studied for over 20 years and backed by over 40 scientific peer-reviewed studies, taking AC11 has been proven to extend the life of immune cells called leukocytes, allowing you to boost immunity naturally. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off your first order of AC11. That's HealthyCell.com, H-E-A-L-T-H-Y-C-E-L-L. And use code OUTLOUD for 20% off. How the spirit of American liberty and justice is woven into the soul of America out loud. Now we invite you, friends, to invest some of your time with our magnificent family of experts, their minds and voices. It's all back at AmericaOutloud.com. Liberty and justice for all. Welcome back, everyday Americans. Today we're focusing on state and local and some examples of what's been going on state and local. You know, it's interesting, it's campaign season. I don't know about where you are, but here in Tennessee, we have um, a, a primary elections, May 3rd. Uh, I'm not into primaries, but as the election season's coming along, I've been taking some time to talk to some of the candidates to get their positions on things, because a lot happens in our own backyards that either we don't know about or has a much greater impact on our lives, both for good and for ill. Now, take, for example, um, well, let's look, uh, a, a teacher in California uh, out of the uh, L.A. Unified School District went to a, I guess it's some sort of training uh, from a group called the California Conference for Equity and Justice. Now, that sounds great. But the staff member described it as a cult-like, a, sorry, a cult retreat-like experience. That's how they described the, the training that was being performed. 
and this has been reported now by the Parents Defending Education, that they focused on you know critical social justice, gender ideology, socio-emotional engineering, or you know processes. Not sure. All right, this is California. This isn't just California. This is L.A. County. All right, La La Land. Not simply because it's L.A., but because uh, I'm sorry, it's run by people I think are nuts. But when was the last time you checked to see the training the teachers in your school district were getting? See, they're getting training from someone. We we already know that most of the teachers' colleges, most of the teaching degrees involve a very Marxist, uh, collectivist education style. They drive towards this, you know, everyone's, you know, it's all a village and, and, and all of that. We know that happens. But would you ever think about the continuing education that you, the teachers in your district are being subjected to? Because according to the staffer, they were pressured. She, the, the staffer said that trainers called for us, the, the educators, to raise our hands if we could commit to using preferred pronoun, pronouns and stand up if we commit to using trans students' preferred names. It was an obvious sign that you're problematic and bigoted and in the wrong if you don't. See, they're being pressured to promote this. Now, again, I don't wish to be obnoxious and offend people. But there's a point when you're dealing with, especially when you're dealing with children, that says, you know, preferred pronouns will get out of control. You know, the this idea that... Um, Oh, we, we just want to change our name because suddenly boys are girls. And again, especially in our children, that's an engineering, that's an ideology being trained into our educators. They're being pressured to do this. They were also handled hand, given a handout titled Identity Working Terms. The purpose was to address when students or staff make an unacceptable error in words or actions that are against gender ideology. You see, this whole gender ideology, this, this transgender, this whole sexual orientation, this focus has become its own cult-like religion. I, I really, It really struck me when they said that it was a cult retreat-like experience because that's it. There, it's the indoctrination that says, you're not allowed to disagree with someone who clearly cannot recognize reality. Now, again, I'm not talking about calling out students and picking on them for being different. But it's quite different from that from, than saying, listen, I have to call, you know, Jimmy, who's been Jimmy all along, I'm not a, I now have to call Jane simply because he says so. That I'm not allowed to say something when Jimmy, who now wants to be called Jane, decides to walk into the girl's bathroom or other things that we're seeing that is absolutely insane. Now, again, that's California. You expect it in California. What about Texas? See, according to a student, I'm sorry, a teacher in the Austin Independent School District, um, the teacher claims that 20 of her 32 fourth grade students came out to her as LGBTQ. Well, that's according to internal messages from the district that the Daily Caller got access to. Now tell me, you're dealing with fourth graders, 
nine-year-olds. Think about when you were nine years old. When you were nine years old, were you thinking about sex, sexual orientation? Could this be a teacher promoting this? Could this be a teacher simply um, transferring their own opinions onto the students? Let's start with this. Why is a teacher dealing with fourth grade students about their sexual preferences? This is, again, now granted, it is Austin. Austin's weird. That's that's their claim to fame. They love being weird. But just because it's happening in Austin doesn't mean it's it's not happening in other school districts in Texas or any of the other 50 states. Now imagine this. You, you, You have a teacher that believes that more than half of her fourth grade class is LGBTQ, LMNOP, XYZ, ABC. Is she promoting that in the class? But what does that say to the students that they're being told by a teacher, a person in authority? Oh, yeah, well, you know, Jimmy, you decide you want to play with a doll? Oh, well, suddenly you're trans or you're gay or whatever. What is the indoctrination that is we're exposing our children to? And of course, the other question is, are the parents aware of this? You see, in another example out of the Austin Independent School District, five-year-old students were told to keep a conversation they had about LGBT topics confidential. That's right. See, the the um, Austin Independent School District is going to celebrate, uh, or I'm sorry, has celebrated Pride Week in all their public school buildings. Okay, so now you have elementary schools celebrating, celebrating what's gay pride, trans pride. Tell me you're not indoctrinating children into these lifestyles when you are celebrating them on school grounds. But to add insult to injury, students, especially students in the Doss Elementary School, were encouraged to keep these conversations confidential, just between the students and the teachers. In fact, pre-K through second grade students were reminded what we say in this room stays in this room. And third to fifth graders were asked to participate in community circles that are confidential. Remember, they said, please remember that we agreed to keep what happens in the circle confidential. That means these government employees are indoctrinating your children and hiding it from the parents. And this is happening in a school district. This is local government. This isn't an issue for Washington, D.C. This probably isn't even an issue off the bat for um, Austin, Texas, as, from the state government. This is an issue in the local school districts. And while everybody's ranting and raving about the foibles and fumbles of President Biden, about the cackling of Kamala Harris, about what's going on on Capitol Hill or with the new Supreme Court nominee, how many of our students are being indoctrinated into a perverted lifestyle and then being told to keep it from their parents?
That, ladies and gentlemen, that should get your dander up. At least it gets my dander up. I don't know what kind of crime it is, but when you have government officials indoctrinating your children and reminding them to keep it secret from the parents, there's something evil going on. See, if it wasn't evil, you wouldn't need to hide it from the parents, now would you? Either you're saying the parents are evil or you know what you're doing is evil. And that is happening locally. It's why you got to focus local. It's it. How, how can you be expected to fight the good fight in Washington or in, in your state capitol if your own school board is allowing your children to be indoctrinated without you knowing about it? If this is being allowed to go on in your... Do you know? Don't tell me you know it's not happening because, well, you live in a good school district. You'd be surprised what happens in a good school district. I remember consoling a, a mother who was, who was very upset because um, her daughter, her young daughter, was exposed to sexually explicit material in the classroom. And when she went to the principal to find out why, she asked why she was not allowed to opt out. The principal said, we found out that if we allow parents to opt out, most of them do. And this was not last year. This is what, 10 or 12 years ago now. This was a good school in a rural district in a conservative county. Which means it's probably happening in your own district. What are you doing about it? That's what I want to know. Because if you're more worried about what's going on in your state capital and the federal government than you are what's happening in your own backyard, your foundation will be eroded. The foundation for your rights and liberty will be eroded right out from under your feet. And you'll be left hanging in midair and wondering what happened. Because you couldn't be bothered to engage locally. Now that was dealing with schools, but it's not just schools. Well, let's go back to, to New York City. Now, those of you who don't know, I was actually born in New York City. I lived there until I was 11 years old. I lived most of my life in upstate New York. So I'm very, you know, I've been in the city, I've been in and out of the city most of my life until I moved down to Tennessee. And of course, New York City has some of the most draconian vaccine mandates in the country. You can't, well, you can't go in, into a restaurant without a vaccine. They have all these restrictions. You have to be a medical experiment to live a, a quote-unquote normal life in New York. But there's a problem with that. You see, you have athletes that can show up and attend a game, but they can't play in the game because... They're not vaccinated, or quote-unquote vaccinated. So New York City says, well, here's what we'll do. We'll, put, we'll create a new exemption for athletes and performers. Because they really had this bad image of athletes, you know, teams that would come into the city to play a game, and they had athletes that were allowed to actually attend the game, but they couldn't play in the game because that was considered employment and they needed to be vaccinated. They needed to be a medical experiment to participate. 
So they said, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll put in this exemption. Now understand, New York City only needs its exemption because they've put these draconian, illegal draconian mandates in place. What are you doing about it? Do you live in New York City? Let me ask you, if you live in New York City, what makes you special because you're an athlete or an entertainer? Because you could sing or play baseball, basketball, or or maybe dance, the, the coronavirus won't come after you? All they're doing is separating people. Now, the everyday ordinary people of New York are not just second-class citizens, they're third-class citizens in their own city because their employees in City Hall think they are too stupid to think for themselves or just too drunk with the power they inherited to recognize how evil and corrupt it is. And again, that isn't a problem out of Washington, D.C. That isn't even a problem out of Albany. Albany has its own problems. That's a problem right there in New York City. The Big Apple is rotten to the core, at least when it comes to the government. But yet the people, the citizens of New York, they're not doing anything about it. They elected another mayor that's yeah, pretty much just as draconian as the one they had before. You do the same thing over and over again, expecting a different result? Albert Einstein thought, you were nuts. Now, I have to head out to another break, but before I do, there's a couple websites, a couple places I really think you should visit. I think you'd really benefit from it. We've been talking about students. We've been talking about schools a lot in this segment. Do you know there's an organization that is trying to put a copy of the Constitution and Declaration of Independence in the hands of every eighth grader in the country every year? That's right. It's called the 917 Society. 917 for September 17th, Constitution Day. You can find them at 917society.org. That's nine, the numbers, 917society.org. Find out if they're coming to your area. Maybe you can volunteer for them. Maybe you can give them some financial support. But you can help them help educate our children by exposing them to the actual language of the Constitution and helping teachers teach about the Constitution, not simply the dates and times of what the Constitution actually says. So check them out. That's 917society.org. If you want to find out more about what the Constitution Study is doing, well, head to constitutionstudy.com. It's where you can find articles, videos, all sorts of contents. It's a great place to ask a question. I love answering questions. And if you can just, in the menu bar, you'll see ask a question. If you would like me to answer it on this radio program, there's a little checkbox. Just check that. I will answer that on the radio program. I'm putting together questions to do a Q&A segment for this program. Again, that's all there at constitutionstudy.com. Now, I'm also putting together my 2022 tour. I want to visit as many places as I can. I want to meet as many people as I can. And I want the opportunity to talk to as many of you as I can. I'm still getting started. So I don't, I don't have any venues booked yet. But if you want to find out more, go to constitutionstudy.com tour. If you would like me to come speak to your group, speak at your event, there's a form at the bottom of the page to fill out. I do not charge to come out if you don't charge people to attend. You know, figure if you're giving it away for free, I'll give my talk away for free. It doesn't need to be a big event. It doesn't need to be something fancy and special. I've met in bakeries. I've met in VFWs. I've met in 
and all sorts of little clubs and events. And yes, I've met in big places, big uh, auditoriums. If you'd like me to come and talk to your group, just fill out that form and we'll see if we can make it happen. I'd love to come speak to you and your group or to speak at your event. And please make AmericaOutloud.com your daily stop for all the latest news and happenings. You can find links to our apps. You can find links to the shows. You can find links that you can share with friends and family. So please, again, visit AmericaOutloud.com and everyone who supports the Constitution Study. You've been in that situation. The person next to you is sniffling or worse yet, (coughs) coughing. Flu, cold, and coronaviruses are everywhere. Wouldn't it be great if you had a way to reduce these threats with an invisible mask as an additional layer of protection? Sold by hundreds of pharmacists and medical doctors, our American-made povidone iodine antiviral nasal spray, Cofix RX, lasts for hours deactivating viruses and germs while protecting you from airborne pathogens that make us sick. America Out Loud listeners get 20% off. Use Cofix RX while in large groups, while traveling, or for any other type of high-risk situation as an additional layer of protection to help reduce your likelihood of catching a cold, the flu, or SARS-CoV-2 viruses. Right now, America Out Loud listeners get 20% off of all orders. Click our banner ad on AmericaOutloud.com and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off. In today's world, there's no escaping the headlines filled with warnings about emerging viruses and dangerous superbugs. Genesis is the only technology that safely and effectively obliterates harmful pathogens both in the air and on surfaces. Genesis plus HOCL neutralize these threats to your environment in just seconds. Find out more about this amazing technology at genesisfogger.com forward slash out loud for a 15% discount. With Genesis, you'll be prepared for what's next. Welcome back, everyday Americans. Today we're talking about state and local, state and local governments, the areas that we tend to forget about as we're worried about what's going on in D.C. And there's a lot that's going on in our cities, in our towns, in our counties, in our states that we really should be paying attention to. Well, take, for example, Chicago. Chicago keeps is generally up there near the murder capital of the country. It's, you know, it's, it's usually in the top few. They have some of the most restrictive gun laws in the country, but they also have some of the highest murder rates. They also have some of the most strictest gun control laws. Um, it's very hard for you to, to you know, be able to defend yourself in the Windy City. Well, you see, that is unless you're the mayor. See, the mayor has a unit. They call it Unit 544. And there's over 71 officers in there that are basically the mayor's bodyguard. Now, the mayor says that she needs this protection, well, because there are murders. Yeah, there are a lot of murders in Chicago. There, there's physical, you know, there, there's a lot of threats to people's lives. But you see, if you're the mayor, you don't have to carry an arms because you've got dozens of armed officers there to protect you. Watching over her home, her office, her family. That's their job. Now, I understand that, you know, if you have a high-profile position in a city like Chicago, you may be more of a target than, you know, poor old dumb Paul in the middle of nowhere, Tennessee. I can understand that. But you see, what I don't understand 
is why if Mayor Lightfoot warrant armed protection, why are not the rest of the citizens of her city? Why don't they warrant armed protection? Do you think the people living in the neighborhoods with all with with the gangs and the and the and the criminals that they don't have their their lives are not threatened? The the areas where you've got um, violent crime, carjackings, muggings, assaults, rapes, you don't think they need armed protection, or is it just because you're special, Mayor Lightfoot? Now, are are you special because? Well, you won an election. You got the people of Chicago to hire you to be the executive of the city. Is that why you need protection? Are you telling everyone else in the city to just let them eat cake? Or just let them walk around and when they get attacked or shot or stabbed or raped, then call the police to come clean up the mess? See, that's the part about the the these city and local ordinances that we need to expose. It's the hypocrisy. This is Mayor Lightfoot can defend herself because she gets the city to pay police to protect her. But the everyday ordinary citizen of Chicago who can't afford private security, they don't get it. They don't get any security. They're not allowed to have armed protection because they can't afford it. You know, many years ago, there was a candidate for president who said there were two Americas and there are two Americas. There's a political America and there's everybody else. Those in, you know, either in politics or with political power, they get to have protection. They get to have special access. Everyone else just has to deal with it. But this is happening because the people of Chicago hired these people. They hired Mayor Lightfoot. They hired the city council. Now, if the mayor and the city don't believe you have the right to defend yourself with the most uh, effective tool possible, maybe the problem is you're hiring the wrong people to oversee your government. Now, so far, I've been talking about fairly liberal, fairly progressive Areas, right? California, New York City, Chicago. What about the buckle of the Bible Belt? So I moved to the state of Tennessee because I wanted to live free. But even here, you have to pay attention to our servants, our public servants in government. See, there is a piece of legislation floating around our legislature that was amended unanimously by the Senate's Health and Welfare Committee. Now, what did this particular amendment state? What are the, what are the changes that are being made? They're changing the language of, of uh, the Tennessee Code annotated, uh, specifically Section 68-10-104C, to read, The following health care officers and providers licensed in this state may examine, diagnose, or treat a minor infected with STDs or provide consultation, examination, diagnosis, or treatment to a minor to prevent STDs without the knowledge or consent of the parent or legal guardians of the minor and incur no civil or criminal liability in connection with a consultation, examination, diagnosis, or treatment except for negligence. That's right, ladies and gentlemen. Right here in the middle of the Bible Belt, our state government 
wants your minor children to receive consultation, treatment, diagnosis of sexually transmitted diseases without your knowledge and without your consent. And again, not because of any deficiency they found in the parenting process. This is not a question of, you know, if a, if a parent is found to be of, uh, you know, a, a, a potential, um, I don't know, potentially negligent. No, 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 no. Your child, your son, your daughter believes that they, they may get an STD, they, may, they actually, may actually contract an STD. Maybe it was consensual, maybe it was not consensual. Maybe it could be any one of another any reasons. They, get, they can be diagnosed, examined, and treated without your knowledge. And you know what? You cannot sue, that's what they say, in connection with the examination, diagnosis, or treatment unless the, uh, the doctor or healthcare provider was negligent in how they did it. Now, don't get me wrong. The law currently reads pretty much the same way. This is not a major change. But this is the Bible Belt. This is a, a state that is, we'll say, reliably Republican, reliably conservative. Yet in this state, your children can be treated for a sexually transmitted disease without your knowledge. And just think about what happens. Let's say, let's say your child gets treatment. Let's say your child gets a, 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 a sexually transmitted disease. And let's say it is from a legal activity, right? Well, we'll forget the fact that, hey, what if it happened through an illegal activity? Therefore, um, hiding from the parents the possibility of a crime. We'll just set that aside for a moment. Let's just say that your child gets treated for this STD. Your child comes home. The child doesn't feel well. You know, maybe they're having a reaction either to the disease or to the treatment. So you take them to the doctor. You take them to urgent care. Or even worse case, you take them to the emergency room. So, of course, the first thing the doctors ask for is a medical history. Are they on any medications? Are they on any, any treatments? And, of course, you don't know because this has been hidden from you. So you tell the doctor, no, they're not on any treatment. So the doctor prescribes some treatment for the, their symptoms. The child has a bad reaction. Because the doctor prescribed something that was contraindicated with the treatment the minor was receiving for the STD. But you see, the parent didn't know that. See, we're not talking about adults. We're talking about minors. Children. Children who, last I knew, couldn't get an aspirin without a parent's permission, but can be treated for an STD without a parent's permission. Without even a notification. So you find out, hey, that your child has a severe reaction. Uh, maybe there are some long-term consequences. You go to sue the person who gave them treatment without your knowledge, and the state says, oh, I'm sorry, you can't do that because... It was a sexually transmitted disease. If they get an infection, 
because they stepped on a rusty nail or they fell against something and uh, got scraped up. You can't get an they they can't get an antibiotic without your permission, but they can be treated for a sexually transmitted disease. How perverse does that make us? That sex is something that gets such special treatment. We won't even let the parents know when we treat a, a minor for a disease. And that's right here in Tennessee. Now, over in Connecticut, they've got a different situation. See, in a, in a 1989 lawsuit was filed on behalf of children that fell under the state's um, child family services. Uh, the department, what well, they call it the Department of Child and Family, sorry. And uh, they, they, there was an allegation in 89 that um, they, there was, the children were subject to uh, a, allegedly abuse and neglect while under the control of the Department of Family and the Children and Family. Um, this led to a, some organizational changes. And, by the way, an order that gave federal officials oversight of the state's DCF. Now, I want to remind you, overseeing children is not a power delegated to the United States. Now, if DCF really truly was abusive and negligent, then yes, they required some oversight. Is it the federal government's role to do this? No. Oh, but the... It actually was illegal for them to do this. Not a power delegated to the United States. So now, the Connecticut governor, Ned Lamont, and their attorney general, William Tong, they filed a motion to end the federal oversight of the state's Department of Children and Families. See, here we had a problem in a state. And rather than dealing with it at the state level... We allowed the feds to claim oversight of a state government agency. Now, this brings on flashbacks because when I was was when I was researching my book, The Constitution Study, I, I found a website that listed all the executive, all the departments and agencies in the federal government. And uh, they listed among the departments and agencies of the federal government each and every state reminded me of that. That the federal government considers your state a vassal of Washington, D.C. And we let that happen because we don't stand up with the states if they try to stand up to such federal overreach. Now, after all of that news, I got to go all the way back to California for another piece of why it's important to focus on state and local issues. See, there's a bill in California, uh, SB 1326, that if it's passed, the proposed would authorize the governor to enter into agreements with other states authorizing marijuana activity between entities licensed under the laws of the other states. So in other words, California, the governor, could make a deal with another state and, you know, let's say, I don't know, Nevada, Arizona, wherever, and say, we're going to have this interstate agreement involving marijuana sales and production. 
Now, I don't know, personally, um, I don't so much have a problem with states saying, you know what, the federal government, you don't have the legal authority to tell us we cannot legalize marijuana. Personally, I think using marijuana is a, a stupid thing to do. Then again, I also think using tobacco and um, drive, riding a motorcycle without a helmet, um, overuse of alcohol, these are all stupid. We all do stupid things. But here you have the state saying, not only are we going to, within our state, say, uh, yeah, you know, we have the right to allow marijuana sales because the federal government doesn't have the legal authority to regulate drugs intrastate. But there's, uh, there's, there's this one little thing called the Constitution. You heard of that? Yeah, and in that Constitution, under Article 1, Section 10, Clause 3, says that no state shall, without the consent of Congress, lay any duty of tonnage, keep troops or ships of war in time of peace, enter into any agreement or compact with another state or with a foreign power, or engage in war unless actually invaded, or in such imminent dangers shall not admit to delay. You see, the states are not allowed to enter into interstate compacts without the approval of Congress. So while I am all for the state of California saying we are going, we've legalized marijuana, okay, that's your choice. Entering into an interstate compact, though, however, yeah, no, you need the approval of Congress because you're dealing with interstate commerce. See, I saw this on the Tenth Amendment Senate. They were talking about the um, federal prohibition on the growing and sale of cannabis. That to me is is a non sequitur. That is that that law is unconstitutional because Congress only deals with interstate commerce. But you're talking about an interstate compact here, and that's different. So we need to be uh, watching what our states are doing because, again, although they're I think they're trying to do the right thing, it sounds like they're trying to do it in the wrong way. And when we break a law because we like we, we don't like it, that's not a good enough reason. So I hope you've enjoyed this. I hope you've seen a couple things as we've gone around the country, what's going on in state and local governments, and understand the importance that we, we, we watch over our employees in government. As I've said before, this is not only election year. This is a job review. This is the perfect opportunity to meet and talk with your elected employees. Make sure they've been following the handbook. That's the constitutions of the state in the United States. And if they've not, maybe it's time to find somebody who will. Let's not worry about whether or not they're a donkey or an elephant. Let's worry about whether or not they're fulfilling their oath to support the constitution of their state and of the United States. See, if we're watching what's going on in our states, if we make our states more accountable to the, the supreme law of the land and to the people who ordained and established it, who created these governments to protect our rights, if we do that at the local level, we can make a change at the state level. And if we make this change at the state level, it can have an impact in Washington. Do me a favor, please. Go to AmericaOutloud.com, look up the Constitution study under the shows, 
find these articles, share it with friends and family. Help me to spread the blessings of liberty. Hey, Bill, stay out of jail. Love the neighbors and have a few good friends.